morning. Be reading uh, today from Psalm 139. Probably standing too close to this thing. (laughs) (laughs) For the director of music, a Psalm of David. Can read the entire Psalm. So, (laughs) O Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely. O Lord, you hem me in behind and before. You have laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me, and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand, When I awake, I am still with you. If only you would slay the wicked, O God. Away from me, you bloodthirsty men. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I I not hate those who hate you, O Lord, and abhor those who rise up against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much for this day that you've given, Father. We thank you for a time that we can gather together uh, in your name, in Jesus' name, and, and worship you, Father God. Lord, help us today to, uh, to appreciate your word, Father, to take it into our souls and, and just be blessed by it. Father, I pray that the, uh, the words of our mouth, as the song said, and the meditations of our heart would be pleasing in your sight, Father. May I pray you may bless Pastor this morning, give him the words to say. Father, may we all be blessed as a result. In Jesus' name, amen. In 1952, the Federal Civil Defense Administration released a short film that was played in schools all across the country for a few years during the 1950s called Duck and Cover. Duck and Cover. It featured a small little turtle that showed children what to do in case a nuclear bomb went off and the little turtle ducked, covered his head. The film's about 10 minutes long. It's a very authoritative, reassuring voice telling you what to do, what you can expect if a bomb explodes. 
There would be a brilliant flash of light far brighter than the sun. And then there will be a blast wave shortly after. Just like you see the light of lightning before you hear the boom of thunder. And if you see the flash and take shelter before the blast wave hits you, it could save your life. I remember seeing just a short clip from this video. I was out of school, and they they don't show this to school children anymore. It probably would scare them to death if they did. When I first saw it, I just laughed at it because it seemed so hopelessly futile. If an atomic bomb goes off, what hope is there? And so I thought of it as almost a sort of twisted joke, you know, like like your government is trying to assure you that there's some hope, you'll be okay, just cover your head. But as it turns out, it actually could save lives. In fact, it has saved lives. Because, as you know, during World War II, the United States dropped two atomic bombs in Japan. The first one was in Hiroshima, And some of the survivors of Hiroshima, people who actually did take shelter after seeing the blast, because the normal human reaction is, there's a blast. Oh, what was that? You stand up and look at it, and then the blast wave hits you in the face and kills you. But if you get down and hide and, and have some, even a small amount of shelter, even clothing can shield you from the heat If you seek shelter, it it will save your life. And and the Japanese survivors of Hiroshima spread that word around Japan. And when we dropped a second bomb on Nagasaki, there were far fewer casualties because people listened. And they did take shelter after seeing that initial flash of light. Which means... I would have died because after watching the video that told me what to do, I said, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard, and I would have ignored it. I would have been the kind of person that would have seen the flash of light and said, well, this is hopeless. I might as well watch what happens. And I mention that to say this. Because I didn't believe that message, it would have meant death and destruction for me. And we have heard Jesus talk about the kingdom of God that is coming. And if you are here last week, you heard me preach a message where Jesus says very clearly and specifically that the days leading up to his return will be like the days of Noah. Where no one repents and the only person saved is the person who trusts in the promises of God. So Noah and his family, Noah believed God, and he got into an ark, and he saved his life and the life of his family. Jesus also mentions Sodom and Gomorrah. God had heard the cries of the suffering people and judged the city of Sodom and Gomorrah, and the only person who was saved was Lot. He was dragged out of the city, really against his will. And Jesus warns that there is judgment coming when the kingdom of God comes. And that means we need to be ready for the kingdom of God. You know, I I talk a lot about the gospel, and and I think that's right. But let me talk for a moment about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is a time of peace and joy. It's like a never-ending wedding party where there's feasting, and best of all, we will be in the presence of God as God intended for us to be. And King Jesus will rule and reign with righteousness. He will be better than the best president, better than the best king, better than the greatest ruler the world has ever known. He has no equal. But Jesus warns, that before the Son of Man returns, and before the, days of the, before the day of the Son of Man, that there will be this time of judgment where we hear the warning that Jesus is returning, and if we do not heed the warning, we will be caught up in that destruction. And so, until Jesus comes, 
The church is responsible to preach the gospel of the kingdom. That's a phrase I don't use as much. If you ask me, what's the gospel? I will tell you, Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead. In fact, I would love it if everyone here could respond in that concise way. What's the gospel? Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead. You can't say it any shorter than that. And yet it contains a life-saving message that Christ, this king who will rule and reign, was willing to die in your place, taking the punishment that you deserved. And when you are united to him by faith, you will be saved because your sins have already been paid for. Jesus absorbed all of God's wrath for you. That's the gospel. But the gospel of the kingdom gives you a little bit more detail. If you ask me, what's the gospel of the kingdom? This is how I would reply. The gospel of the kingdom is that the king is forgiving our treason before he returns to rule and reign in peace and justice. Let me, let me give that to you again. The gospel of the kingdom is that the king is forgiving our treason before he returns to rule and reign in peace and justice. That means that we need to respond before he's here. The resurrection is like that flash of light. It has already happened. And the return of Christ will be a day of terrible judgment unless you listen to the life-saving message that you need to repent now. You know, we talk in a world that, that doesn't often take the message of Jesus seriously. We talk a lot about social justice, and, and I think we should. I think one thing that all Americans can agree on, no matter what your politics, no matter what you believe about faith, all of us agree that people ought to be treated equally and fairly. Now, we will go to war over what that means, but we all agree that people ought to be treated equally and fairly, and, and many are not and have not been. And, and how we right past wrongs and how we fix present failures is one of the things that, that we will not agree on until Jesus returns. Do you know the ultimate answer to our justice problems that we still have? Don't misunderstand me. I believe we should work this out. We should try to seek justice now. But the ultimate answer to our justice problems is Jesus returning in power to finally crush evil. And do you know the terrifying thing about that? It's that you and I are born evil. The Bible teaches that we are born into this world alienated from God, separated from him because of our sin. And if you and I do not seek the mercy of the king who is coming, if we have not been united to Jesus by faith in his death and resurrection, if you're not trusting that his death on the cross was a sacrifice for your sins and his resurrection is the promise of new life, if you're not trusting that, his return will not be a time of joy. It will be a time of terror and destruction. You know, I've been asked, we've been in the Gospel of Luke for about a year, and I know that is a very long time. I've been asked, how is this message from Luke relevant to everyday life? Why do you insist that we need to know the whole life of Jesus? Well, it's relevant because Jesus could return before I'm done preaching this message. And if you are not right with God, if you have not made peace with God through the cross of Jesus Christ, you will be destroyed. This is deeply personal for each one here. This is immensely relevant. And if it doesn't feel relevant, it's because either you don't believe that Jesus will return as a king, like me, you dismiss that ridiculous message that was not actually ridiculous. Or you may acknowledge that the king is coming, but you are overconfident in how good you are. The message 
of Jesus' life, not just part of his life, but all of his life, helps you prepare to meet him face to face. You need to know Jesus. And Luke wrote an exhaustive gospel so that you could know him well. You don't need part of it. You need all of it. Or you will not be prepared to meet him face to face. All throughout the New Testament, believers who have already received the gospel and been baptized, believers are urged again and again to examine themselves so that they are not ashamed at the return of Christ. The return of Christ should be a more joyful day than the best wedding, than the greatest holiday with all of your family and friends. It should be a happy day. But the New Testament holds out the possibility that if you are a believer and you're not right with Jesus, it will be a day of shame and remorse that you have squandered what the king gave you. And you will not face your Savior with joy. You will face him with shame, even if you are saved. And if you have not trusted Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, it'll be the first day of everlasting destruction and torment for you. This message from Luke is enormously important to each life here. And it's my prayer that we will be ready when the return of Jesus comes. So we're looking in Luke chapter 18, continuing this series. And I want to point out to you, because this passage is obviously about prayer, I want to point out to you that this passage is continuing Jesus' message about his return. So before we go through the whole thing, let me point out to you two verses. Notice first, the second half of verse 8. So skip down with me to verse 8, and look at what Jesus says as he's talked about prayer and talked about how God answers prayer and given his, his disciples the encouragement to pray. He says, nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? So he's talking about his return and leaving an open question that it's possible that some who claim to believe will no longer believe when he comes. Will he find faith on the earth? This is given to prepare us for the coming of Jesus. And then also notice verse 17. Jesus says, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. So he's talking about receiving the kingdom of God. If you look at chapter 17, the chapter right before this one, and look at verse 20, he was just asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come. And everything he taught about the days of the Son of Man and the day of the Son of Man, everything that we saw in this chapter last week was in response to that question. So finally in chapter 18 and in verse 17, he tells you how to be ready for the kingdom of God, how to receive the kingdom of God. And I would say to each of you and to our church collectively, First Baptist, I do not want for us to be ashamed at the coming of Jesus. I do not want you individually as a person to be ashamed, and I do not want our church as a family to be ashamed. And I believe the way for us to be ready is to listen to the clear teaching of Christ and to obediently follow it. Jesus is a good and faithful teacher. If we faithfully obey what he says, we will be ready. He will take care of us. And so we've already seen Jesus talk about this a little bit throughout the gospel. If you look at chapter 12, he talks a little bit about this kind of funny phrase. He, He says, don't live for yourself because your master is delayed. He actually lays the foundation that that his return could take a long time. And when that happens, people begin to live for themselves. And he, he almost comically describes this person who beats his fellow servants and gets drunk. He doesn't love other people who are also waiting on the master to return, just takes advantage, gets whatever he can. Jesus says, don't live like that. The return of Jesus will be terrible for you if you've lived your life for yourself. Last week, I urged you to let go of your stuff now 
so that you're ready when he returns. And I think it's worth looking at that verse again. He, 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 in verse 31 of chapter 17, says, On that day, when Jesus returns, let the one who's on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. Lot's wife is given as an illustration of somebody who looked at the city she loved being destroyed, and she grieved because her heart was in Sodom and Gomorrah, not with God. And so if you want to make sure that your heart is not in the home that you've built here, Learn to be generous. Don't just give away your junk that you don't want anymore, but learn to be a generous person with good things that you love. And Jesus teaches, use the things that you have to spread the good news of the kingdom. You know, we have a generous king, and when we are generous, we can point to our king who has given us so much, who has given us everything. And so I said, be ready for the day of Christ By letting go of your things now. Don't just amass everything you've ever wanted. Learn to be the kind of person who in a moment could walk away from it all because King Jesus is here. So number one, don't live for yourself. Number two, be ready to let it all go. The point of this message today in Luke chapter 18 is that we need to be ready for his return By learning to pray in humility. We need to learn how to pray in humility. And that's not just a few of us. That's every single one of us. And I believe Jesus shows us what we need to know in this passage. And so first, look with me and learn to pray like a desperate widow. Look with me at verses 1 through 8. It says, and he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Now this is a dense passage. I I could say a lot more than I'm going to. But there are a couple things that, that we cannot miss here. Number one, what Jesus says in the very first part of his teaching... Right in in verse 1, he tells you the point of this parable. He wants you to pray and not lose heart. You know what he's doing? He's acknowledging one of the things that keeps us from prayer. And that's that's discouragement. Do do you know what makes people lose heart? Well, Well, I'll point you out in context. Dead bodies are very discouraging. Look again at verse 37 of chapter 17. He said to them, where, Lord? And he said to them, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. He's talking about the day that he returns, and they're asking him, where's all this destruction and judgment going to be? And he says to them, it's going to be obvious. Just look for the vultures. Dead bodies will be everywhere. The judgment of God means things are not going well on the earth. And that has been true for all of human history. And every time you see God's judgment fall, and every time you're trying to be righteous and faithful, and life is hard, your discouragement will keep you from prayer. Jesus has just told his followers, things will be bad before I come back. That's a discouraging message from the man that you're trusting your life with. 
And so Jesus, acknowledging that discouragement, is telling his followers, don't lose heart. He knows that it's difficult to pray faithfully. He knows there are many reasons why we lose faith. And so he is giving you an antidote to your natural tendency. He's telling you, this is how and why you cannot lose heart. Number one, recognize your helplessness. Recognize your helplessness. I said last week, you know, you're not going to be the person in a bunker with a stockpile of food and ammunition so that you can survive the day of the Lord. If you think that you're going to save your life, Jesus says you will lose it. Don't contradict Jesus. It's a bad idea. He guarantees that you will die. You will lose your life if you try to save it. But if you recognize your helplessness like this widow, she cannot provide justice for herself. And so she begs repeatedly and persistently, if you recognize that you need God's help to keep you faithful until the day of Jesus, and you beg him persistently, Jesus is teaching you, you can have 100% confidence that God will answer that prayer and keep you faithful. Recognize your helplessness, and in your helplessness, be persistent. Now, now two, recognize what she's asking for. Recognize what she's asking for. She wants justice. Some of your Bibles might translate this avenging or vengeance. That's actually probably the better word. And here's what that means. We don't know the details of what this woman had been wronged or cheated out of. Whatever it was, she clearly needed it and was desperate for it and had a right to it. And so she's asking this unjust judge for it. And because of her persistence, she receives that justice or that avenging or that vengeance. Somehow she was wronged. And this unjust judge made it right. How is it that the saints are asking God for justice? Or how is it that the saints are asking God for vengeance? Well, there are two ways that God gives justice to the saints. And I believe both of them are in view here. Number one, God gives justice to the saints when he rescues them. From his wrath. Now that might seem weird. That might seem complicated. How how does that work? Well, here's what happens. When you, by faith, trust that Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead, you are united to Christ by that faith. And so in Jesus, your sins are paid for. And it would be unjust of God to punish you for the sins that Jesus has already paid for on your behalf. And so you are given justice when God extends mercy and forgives your sins. And he gives that to you instantaneously. Sometimes people carry a burden of guilt after they've come to the Lord. And Jesus would say, recognize God instantly answers your prayers for forgiveness, for justice. 1 John says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So recognize that God is not an unjust judge. And if an unjust judge can be driven crazy into doing the right thing, how much more will your heavenly father who loves you, who showed his love for you in the cross of Christ, how much more will your heavenly father instantly give you justice and forgive your sins and pardon your guilt? Jesus is teaching he will do that in a moment, speedily. He's not going to delay. But there's a second way that I think is also in view here. And that is God not only gives instant justice to the saints by forgiving their sins, he also avenges crimes against the saints, sometimes in this life, quickly, And ultimately, at the final judgment. And this is a mystery. Sometimes God's judgment comes soon. Sometimes it's delayed. But I'll give you one example that you can actually see in the Gospel of Luke. And that's that God does avenge the death of Christ 
and the persecution of the saints when his wrath is poured out on the city of Jerusalem. So to see this, I want you to see this in the text. Go over to Luke 21, just a few chapters over, and you can see what Jesus teaches about a very near time in his future when Jerusalem is destroyed. So so look Starting in verse 20 of Luke chapter 21, Jesus is still speaking to his disciples. He says, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then you know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains and let those who are inside the city depart and let not those who are out in the country enter it. For these are the days of vengeance. That's the same word that this widow is asking for. These are the days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. He says, Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. This prophecy of Christ is fulfilled in 70 AD when the Romans decide that they want to crush the remnants of Jewish rebellion and they level the city and burn the temple to the ground and kill hundreds and thousands of people. They set crosses up all around the city and crucified rebels. And Jesus said that was God's wrath coming against the city, not only for the death of Christ, Remember the gospel of of Acts? Remember the Acts of the Apostles and and the fact that Peter preaches to the same people who crucified Christ? 3,000 of them are saved in a single day. So God extends mercy to them after the death of Christ and after he's raised from the dead. But how do they respond? Well, the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the scribes, they persecute the apostles and drive them out of the city. And as a result of that, the saints of God cry out. They ask for God's help so that they'd be made faithful. And I believe in response to their cries for justice, just like Jesus taught them to pray, God does judge the city of Jerusalem. And God continues to do things like that. Now, I'm not saying you can point to a disaster and say for sure, that's definitely the judgment of God. But you can say for sure, That Jesus says this will happen more and more until the day of his return. And God's justice right now is partial. But one day when he returns, it will be complete and final. And in the book of Revelation, you find the saints of God crying out for justice, saying, how long, O Lord, how long? And God pours out his wrath finally and completely. And it's at just the right time, in just the right place, and absolutely perfect. There's really nothing special about the city of Jerusalem. Every city and every person is going to be held responsible for what do you do with Jesus Christ and how do you treat his saints and his people of God. And if you have not asked for the mercy of God, like Jerusalem, you will be destroyed as well. Jesus is teaching here that because of the love of God, you can rely on his answer to your prayers for justice. He will forgive you. He will avenge you. If times are frightening, trust your father. He's teaching us that we need to trust ourselves to God. And the best way to do that is to pray with that kind of persistence. So he says how we are to pray, pray like a desperate, persistent widow And then he gives you another example specifically of what to pray for so that you will be ready. So not only are you to pray like a desperate widow, you are to pray like a guilty sinner. Look at verses 9 to 14. It says, He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Said two men went into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I get. 
But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, Jesus tells this parable about two men, and I want to focus on the sinner. But before we do that, notice how he describes this Pharisee. I think the tendency is to say, we are not like this man. But I want to point out one thing. I was reading by, I almost said by chance, but I don't believe it was by chance. As I was studying this week, I wanted to get down a volume that actually had some love poetry in it. My favorite pastor wrote some poems to his wife, and I thought I should love my wife and and read some of this poetry, and maybe it'll help me express my love for her. So I was looking for that volume, and I didn't even pull the right volume down. I pulled the wrong volume down and opened it up and found a passage that was talking about these verses. And I thought, I wouldn't have even looked for this. And so I read it, and my favorite pastor, John Piper, he points out, this Pharisee begins his prayer thanking God for his righteousness. In other words, he is not someone who says, I have learned to do this by myself. He says his righteousness is a gift of God. This man believes in grace. He believes that apart from God, he would not be righteous. Isn't that who we are? We believe in grace. But as he calls on God thanking him for grace, he does two things. He trusts in himself, and he looks down at other people. Now, isn't that also a lot like us? We get to a place where we're like, yeah, I prayed that prayer, and all those poor people out there, they just don't get it. And sometimes you can be very condemning towards people that live in sin. And you can point out how their sin is destroying them and say, you know, their choices are just a consequence of their own stupid actions. And you can be very much like this Pharisee, and so can I. And so this is a warning to us that we are not to trust in ourselves. We are not to look down on other people. Instead, we are to pray like guilty sinners. Notice this sinner. He knows his guilt before God. He does not think for a moment that he is worthy. It says that he stands afar off. He doesn't even want to approach where normal people would pray. He beats his breast and he says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And in his repentance, he does two things. He acknowledges his guilt. He's grieved by it. But he doesn't stay there. He asks God for mercy. He recognizes that God will extend mercy. And he shows you what genuine repentance looks like. And he confesses his sin. And Jesus says... That he went down to his house justified while the other person left condemned. If you want to be ready for Christ, acknowledge your guilt before God and ask for mercy now. And then finally, not only do you need to pray like a desperate widow, not only do you need to pray like a guilty sinner, you need to live like a humble child. You need to live like a humble child. Look with me at verses 15 to 17. See how Jesus wraps up this section on the kingdom of God. So now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him saying, Let the children come to me and do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. You know what Jesus does here? He gives us a picture of what God is like and what we are like. He wants to receive children because he wants us to see what it's like for us to receive the kingdom of heaven. What does he mean by becoming childlike? Well, well, some people think he means childlike innocence. 
you know? So we need to get back to that place where we just even didn't even know what wrong was. But that's garbage. That can't possibly be the case for two reasons. Number one, I have kids and they are not innocent. Number two, it's too late. We're already guilty. You can't go back and undo the wrong that you've done. All of us have sinned in many different ways. So there's no return to childlike innocence. It's not like his return is going to be a great day for those who've managed to preserve innocence. It's too late. Other people say we are to be childlike in the sense that childlike faith is simple. So don't make Christianity too complicated. But that ignores the clear teaching of Scripture. There's a piece that's somewhat true in that the gospel is simple, and we need to clearly and simply proclaim the gospel. But the writer of Hebrews says to every Christian that you ought to move beyond the basics of the faith of repentance of sin to mature knowledge. If you look at the book of Hebrews, it is not a simple book. And the writer of Hebrews says, every believer, this is where you should be. One sign of Christian maturity is a desire to know more theology. You don't dismiss doctrine as something for stuffy eggheads. You long to know more of it because theology is the study of God. We want to know more about him personally In fact, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, do not be like children in knowledge. In your thinking, be mature. We are called to not be infants in thinking. We are to grow in grace and knowledge. There are complicated truths within the scriptures. We should long to know them better, not say that they're unknowable. So that leaves us with the question is, how do we receive the kingdom like children? That's the main point. We want to receive the kingdom. We want to be ready to be ushered in when Jesus returns so that it is a time of joy. Well, two things. I believe that first, when you look at a little kid you see again the way that they ask for things. They ask incessantly to the point of being annoying. They will ask any time, day or night, and they will ask again and again and again until they wear you down and you give in. This is how we are to long for the kingdom. This is how we are to pray. Tim Keller has this great quote. He says, The only person who dares wake up a king at 3 a.m. for a glass of water is a child. And we have that kind of access. So first, children receive things by asking for them incessantly. Second, Children ask with complete trust that their parents can provide what they are asking for. When my kids ask me for a cup of water, it never crosses their mind that I might not have access to water. They know that I can give them what they're asking for. And that is our attitude towards God. It's one of humble trust that persistently asks like that widow like that sinner, like a child. And this needs to be our attitude towards God. We must ask him for everything. We must trust him completely. He is all powerful and he loves you. We need his forgiveness. We need his wisdom. We need his love. We need his provision. We need his protection. And so how do we get those things? We ask for them. So we are to pray constantly. Not only does Jesus say that we ought always to pray, always, Paul says, pray without ceasing. And if you don't think that you need to pray constantly, it's either because you don't believe Jesus is returning, so you feel no urgency. And if that's the case, you'll be caught unaware when he does. Or 
You think that you've already arrived, that you're too good to pray. If that's you and you don't feel the need to pray constantly, you are like the Pharisee who says briefly, thank you, God, that I'm not like the messed up people around me. Do not tell me that prayer just isn't your thing or it's not your spiritual gift. Jesus isn't saying this to select few people. He's saying it to every believer from every walk of life. If you can't pray out loud, fine. I'm not worried about that. Pray along with people who can. Say an amen as a brother or a sister leads in prayer. And if you have to, make it a silent amen. But pray and pray constantly. There's an urgency in prayer in our church. What do we pray for? Well, Jesus has already taught some on that. You pray to repent and turn from your sins. Pray and ask God for forgiveness. Pray and ask God for his provision. That's why Jesus said, give us this day our daily bread. Pray for perseverance. This text is acknowledging that life is hard. And that it will only get worse until he returns. You might be worried about your kids and your grandkids. You might be worried about yourself. That's hard. Your health, many of you, your health is failing. That's hard. You are bombarded all the time with lies about what's right and wrong. Sometimes we get them in school. If if you're a kid in school, sometimes you just get it through TV. Sometimes you get it through pop music. Sometimes you get it through popular books and, and talk shows. All the time, your faith is being chipped away by a tsunami of lies. And if you don't persevere, you will be swept away. That's hard. Many people fall away. I've heard of a pastor and a worship leader just in the past month, enormously famous. Both of them, and both of them publicly on Instagram said, I cannot call myself a Christian anymore and walked away. Many people don't persevere. Pray that you will persevere. That's why Jesus asks the question in our text, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? He wants you to ask yourself, will I be faithful? And he wants you to pray to persevere. And as I close this message, I like to do two things. I know from talking to many of you, many of you would say, well, I'm not much of a prayer. And that needs to change. Would you acknowledge that that needs to change? And if that's true... Here's what I would like to do. I I don't want to make you uncomfortable. I'm not going to ask people to pray out loud right now. Maybe you'll never pray out loud in, in a group of people this large. But here's what I'd like to ask you to do. Most of you should have a little bulletin or a little scrap of paper or something. I'd like you to write your name on it. And I'd like you to, to write, I need to pray. And I'd like it if you would allow me or someone else in the church that you know prays consistently and regularly to help you with your prayer life. Say, I need help with my prayer life. Here's my number. You can come to prayer meeting. That, that might help. You can listen to other people pray around you. You don't have to pray. That's fine. I would be happy to come to your house and pray with you. There are resources that can help you. But would you just admit today that I need to pray in obedience to what Jesus has said and I need to grow in this? It might be as simple as just listening to other people pray. I believe learning to pray is a lot like learning to talk. My youngest is two. Jack learned how to talk not because we forced him to go to English language school. He learned to talk by listening to other people talk. And you learn to talk to God by listening to other people talk to God. And so I would urge you, make a commitment to spend some time with other believers in prayer. And let's all of us pray together that we would be ready. Would you pray with me now? It's my prayer that that as we listen to what Jesus teaches about his return and our need for constant prayer, that everyone in here would be ready when he returns. And if you need to confess your sins and find the forgiveness that Jesus offers, I want to give you time and space to do that now. Would you call out to the Lord in faith and ask for God's mercy? 
Would you say that Jesus, I know I'm a sinner and I need your forgiveness and would you pray and ask for it? Your father would love to give it to you. And if you're a believer and you would acknowledge, you know, I'm not much of a prayer and I need to learn how to pray, would you admit that before God? You actually need to repent because Jesus has told you to pray and you haven't obeyed. And that's a sin. So would you repent of that sin and commit to obedience so that all of us, as we follow the Lord, would be ready when he returns? Father in heaven, Lord, your plan is perfect. And we... We want to be ready when the trumpet sounds and Christ returns. And I pray that we would obey what Jesus so clearly taught. Father, I pray that you would help us to persevere and be persistent. Lord, we cry out for justice in a world that's broken and so many people are hurt by the effects of our own sin We cry out for mercy, acknowledging our individual sin. And Father, I pray that you would keep us faithful until Jesus returns. We have seen people walk away. Don't let that happen to us. May we be ready when you return. And we will praise you for all of eternity for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. As I dismiss you, I want to leave you with the words of of Jude that are so familiar and give you the hope that Jesus, as you depend on him, as you trust him, he will keep you. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time And now and forever, amen. As you leave, be faithful to do what you committed to do before God. Go in peace.